Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast, this is your host Paul. This is episode 128, which is entitled, What Does Space Smell Like? Our first story this week comes from the dailymail.co.uk website. Britain's Atlantis has been found at the bottom of the North Sea, a huge undersea world swallowed by the sea in 6500 BC. And this article is written by Rob War. Britain's Atlantis, a hidden underwater world swallowed by the North Sea, has been discovered by divers working with science teams from the University of St Andrews. Doggerland, a huge area of dry land that stretched from Scotland to Denmark, was slowly submerged by water between 18,000 BC and 5,500 BC. Divers from oil companies have found remains of a drowned world, with a population of tens of thousands, which might have once been the real heartland of Europe. A team of climatologists, archaeologists and geophysicists has now mapped the area using new data from oil companies and revealed the full extent of a lost land once roamed by mammoths. The research suggests that the populations of these drowned lands could have been tens of thousands living in an area that stretched from northern Scotland across to Denmark and down the English Channel as far as the Channel Islands. The area was once the real heartland of Europe and was hit by a devastating tsunami, the researchers claim. The wave was part of a larger process that submerged the low-lying area over the course of thousands of years. The name was coined for Dogger Bank, but it applies to any of several periods when the North Sea was land, says Richard Bates of the University of St Andrews. Around 20,000 years ago, there was a maximum although part of this area would have been covered with ice. When the ice melted, more land was revealed, but the sea level also rose. 
Through a lot of new data from oil and gas companies, we're able to give form to the landscape and make sense of the mammoths found out there and the reindeer. We're able to understand the types of people who were there. People seem to think rising sea levels are a new thing, but it's a cycle of Earth history that has happened many, many times. Organised by Dr Richard Bates of the Department of Earth Sciences at St Andrews, the Drowned Landscapes exhibit reveals the human story behind Doggerland, a now submerged area of the North Sea that was once larger than many modern European countries. Dr Bates, a geophysicist, said, Doggerland was the real heartland of Europe until sea level rose to give us the UK coastline of today. We have speculated for years on the lost land's existence from bones dredged by fishermen all over the North Sea. But it's only since working with oil companies in the last few years that we have been able to recreate what this lost land looked like. When the data was first being processed, I thought it unlikely to give us any useful information. However, as more area was covered, it revealed a vast and complex landscape. We now have been able to model its flora and fauna, build up a picture of the ancient world that lived there and begin to understand some of the dramatic events that subsequently changed the land, including the sea rising and a devastating tsunami. The research project is a collaboration between St Andrews and the Universities of Aberdeen, Birmingham, Dundee and Wales Trinity St David. Rediscovering the land through pioneering scientific research the research reveals a story of a dramatic past that featured massive climate change. The public exhibit brings back to life the Mesolithic populations of Doggerland through artefacts discovered deep within the seabed. The research, a result of a painstaking 15 years of fieldwork around the murky waters of the UK, is one of the highlights of the London event. The interactive display examines the lost landscape of Doggerland and includes artefacts from various times, represented by the exhibit, from pieces of flint used by humans as tools to the animals that also inhabited these lands. Using a combination of geophysical modelling of data obtained from oil and gas companies and direct evidence from material recovered from the seafloor, the research team was able to build up a reconstruction of the lost land. The findings suggest a picture of a land with hills and valleys, large swamps and lakes with major rivers dissected by a convoluted coastline. As the sea rose, the hills would have become an isolated archipelago of low islands. By examining the fossil record, such as pollen grains, microfauna and macrofauna, the researchers can tell what kind of vegetation grew in Doggerland and what animals roamed there. Using this information, they were able to build up a model of the carrying capacity of the land and work out roughly how many humans could have lived there. The research team is currently investigating more evidence of human behaviour, including possible human burial sites, intriguing standing stones and a mass mammoth grave. Dr Bates added, We haven't found an X marks the spot or Joe created this, but we have found many artefacts and submerged features that are very difficult to explain by natural causes, such as mounds surrounded by ditches and fossilised tree stumps on the seafloor. There is actually very little evidence left because much of it has eroded underwater. 
It's like trying to find just part of a needle within a haystack. What we have found though is a remarkable amount of evidence and we are now able to pinpoint the best places to find preserved signs of life. As you're sitting back listening to my podcasts, have you ever thought about, where did we come from? What's the meaning of life? Things like that. Well, from the www.fennomenica.com website, an article entitled, A 500 Million Year Old Mistake Led to the Evolution of Humans. Over 500 million years ago, a spineless creature on the ocean floor experienced two successive doublings in the amount of its DNA, a mistake that eventually triggered the evolution of humans and many other animals, a new study has claimed. An Amphioxus, also called a lancelet, which is a very distant cousin to humans and other vertebrates. It is the creature most similar to the original spineless organism that existed before a major genomic event occurred. The good news is that these ancient DNA doublings boosted cellular communication systems so that our body cells are now better at integrating information than even the smartest smartphones. The bad part is that communication breakdowns traced back to the very same genome duplications of the Cambrian period, can cause diabetes, cancer and neurological disorders. Organisms that reproduce sexually usually have two copies of their entire genome, one inherited from each of the two parents, Discovery News quoted co-author Carol McIntosh as saying. What happened over 500 million years ago is that this process went wrong in an invertebrate animal, which somehow inherited twice the usual number of genes. In a later generation, the fault recurred, doubling the number of copies of each gene once again, she said. McIntosh, a professor in the College of Life Sciences at the University of Dundee, said that such duplications also happened in plant evolution. As for the progeny of the newly formed animal, they remarkably survived and thrived. The duplications were not stable, however, and most of the resulting gene duplicates were lost quickly, long before humans evolved, McIntosh said. But some did survive, as McIntosh and her team discovered. Her research group studies a network of several hundred proteins that work inside human cells to coordinate their responses to growth factors and to insulin hormone. Key proteins involved in this process are called 14-3-3. For this later study, the scientists mapped, classified and conducted a biochemical analysis of these proteins. This found that they date back to the genome duplications which occurred during the Cambrian. 
The first animal to carry them remains unknown, but gene sequencing shows that a modern-day invertebrate known as Amphioxus is most similar to the original spineless creature before the two rounds of whole genome duplication, McIntosh said. Amphioxus can therefore be regarded as a very distant cousin to all the vertebrate or backbone species, she said. The inherited proteins appear to have evolved to make a team that can tune into more growth factor instructions than would be possible with a single protein. These systems inside human cells therefore behave like the signal multiplexing systems that enable our smartphones to pick up multiple messages, she shared. The teamwork may not always be a good thing, though. The researchers proposed that if a critical function were performed by a single protein, as in amphioxus, then its loss or mutation would likely be lethal, resulting in no disease. If multiple proteins are working as a team, however, and one or more becomes lost or mutated, the individual may survive, but could still wind up with a debilitating disorder. Such breakdowns could help to explain how diseases such as diabetes and cancer are so entrenched in humans. Ice cream was enjoyed in Italy by rich and poor alike, long before freezing technology brought iced products to the masses, says new research. Long portrayed as a luxury product that in its early days would have been enjoyed primarily by an elite set of society, ice cream was sold on the streets in Naples as long as 300 years ago. From the news.discovery.com website, in early Italy... Ice cream was all the rage. At that time, making ice cream was a laborious task which relied on large amounts of ice. Until the late 19th century when industrial refrigeration eliminated the need for ice houses, ice was harvested from glaciers in the mountains and transported to towns and cities where it was used to cool buckets of mixers. Snow too was gathered and made into ice by being compressed into pits where it could be kept cold for months. In fact, the early history of ice cream making suggests that snow often inspired frozen treats. Popular law has attributed the creation of ice desserts to the Roman Emperor Nero, who had slaves bring buckets of snow from the mountains to mix with fruit and honey. There was also Marco Polo, who brought from China a recipe closely resembling the sherbet. The royal chef of England's Charles I apparently made frozen treats, and Catherine de' Medici supposedly brought Italian chefs, able to make flavoured ice, to France when she became the wife of Henry II. Others credit Bernardo Buontalinti, an architect and engineer at the Medici court in Florence, with making the first gelato. 
At the 1600 wedding of Maria de Medici and Henry IV of France, he conceived marvels of gelati made of snow, salt, lemons, sugar, egg whites and milk. Ice cream, whoever invented it, was long associated to wealthy tables as surviving royal porcelain artefact relating to the consumption of ice desserts testify. But according to Melissa Calaresu, an historian at Cambridge University in the UK, ice cream was not reserved for the elite, at least not in southern Italy. Contemporary sources suggest that there was much greater intermingling and overlapping of social malaise in cities such as Naples than historians have thought, she said. The stifling heat of the Neapolitan summer represented a lucrative market for cool refreshments that would have included both rich and poor, said Calarissu. The consumption of ice in Naples was so large that it was soon considered an important commodity. Official records show that as well as other staples such as oil and grain, ice was taxed and prices for it were recorded and regulated. The passion for iced water is so great and so general in Naples that none but mere beggars would drink it in its natural state, and I believe a scarcity of bread would not be more severely felt than a failure of snow. The English travel writer Henry Swinburne, who travelled to Naples in the 1780s, wrote, According to Calaresu, in the 18th century, Naples' iced treats were enjoyed by the Lazzaroni, the Neapolitan lower classes, as well as by the aristocrats. At that time, the city was the third largest in Europe and a stopping point on the Grand Tour, a rite of passage undertaken by middle and upper class young men from Northern Europe. Evidence for the social power of ice creams came from a number of prints sold as souvenirs to the Grand Tour travellers. For example, an engraving by Achille Vianelli showed a sorbet vendor with a long apron selling his wares from a table set near the Castel Nuovo. Two gentlemen in top hats and fitted jackets scoop their sorbets from small pots, while a rascally-looking fellow with bare feet and a missing trouser leg tips his sorbet straight into his open mouth, Calaresi wrote. An engraving of a similar scene by Pietro Fabris shows a couple of barefoot boys reaching out to lick the spoon of an ice cream seller who has stationed himself and his wooden pails in a square beside Naples' Angevin Castle. Calaresi also found that many travellers noted the dependence of the poor as well as the rich on iced products. John Moore, an English doctor living in Naples in the 1780s, even described cold drinks as a threat to social order. The half-naked Lazzarone is often tempted to spend the small pittance destined for the maintenance of his family on this bewitching beverage as the most dissolute of the low people in London spend their wages on gin and brandy, he wrote. While examples of ice cream containers made in silver and porcelain can be found in several museums and collections, little is known about containers used on the street. According to Calaresu, vendors might have sold their wares in reusable pewter bowls. From the mid-19th century, ice cream bought on the street was served in thick glass bowls, known as penny licks. Customers would lick the glass clean and return it to the vendor, who would reuse the container. 
Concerns about hygiene led Italian entrepreneur Italo Marcioni, who lived in New York City, to invent a pastry cup in 1896, and the concept of the cone was born. I'm not sure if Deidre Flint, who sang the Boob Fairy song, still has the same problem these days. But a revolutionary discovery is writing the history of underwear. Some 600 years ago, women wore bras. From the www.timedcolonist.com website, an archaeologist finds a 600-year-old bra. The University of Innsbruck said that archaeologists found four linen bras dating from the Middle Ages in an Austrian castle. Fashion experts described the find as surprising because the bra had commonly been thought to be only little more than a hundred years old as women abandoned the tight corset. Instead, it appears the bra came first, followed by the corset, followed by the reinvented bra. One specimen in particular looks exactly like a modern brassiere, said Hilary Davidson, fashion curator for the London Museum. These are amazing finds. Although the linen garments were unearthed in 2008, they did not make news until now, said Beatrix Nuts, the archaeologist responsible for the discovery. Researching the items and carbon dating them to make sure they were genuine took some time. She delivered a lecture on them last year, but the information stayed within academic circles until a recent article in the BBC History magazine. We didn't believe it ourselves, she said in a telephone call from Innsbruck. From what we knew, there was no such thing as bra-like garments in the 15th century. The university said the four bras were among more than 2,700 textile fragments, 
some linen, others linen combined with cotton, that were found intermixed with dirt, wood, straw and pieces of leather. Four linen textiles resemble modern time bras, with distinct cups, and one in particular looks like today's version, it said, with two broad shoulder straps and a possible back strap. Not preserved, but indicated by partially torn edges of the cups onto which it was attached. And the lingerie was not only functional. The bras were intricately decorated with lace and other ornamentation, the statement said, suggesting that they were also meant to please a suitor. While paintings of the era show outerwear, they do not reveal what women wore beneath. Davidson, the fashion curator, described the finds as kind of a missing link in the history of women's underwear. Women started experimenting with bra-like garments in the 1800s and the first modern brassiere was patented in the early 20th century. It is thought to have been invented by a New York sociolite, Mary Phelps Jacob, who was unhappy with the look of her gown over a stiff corset. Also found at Lemburn Castle in Tyrol was a linen undergarment that looks very much like a pair of panties. But Nuts said it is men's underwear. Women did not wear anything under their flowing skirts back then. Underpants were considered a symbol of male dominance and power, she said. Medieval drawings often show a man and a woman fighting for a pair of underpants in a symbolic battle to see who wears the trousers in the family. And if you'd like to see a picture to go with this uplifting story, visit the show notes at www.origins.info. Click on the Origins show notes link, the link to episode 128, and then the link to this article. Dear Word Detective, where did the word demented come from? A sleep deprivation experiment was conducted by William Dement at the University of Chicago in the 1950s, and I believe the word comes from this. Am I right? Danny Foster. Ah, yes. Sleep the innocent sleep. Sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. The death of each day's life. Sore labour's bath. Balm of hurt minds, great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. That sleep. Don't care for it myself. No time. Things to do, you know. Haven't slept in months. Doctor gives me pills. Well, not really a doctor, but I don't like to pry. I've been thinking of running for president, but I can't find my feet. Is there someone at the door? And now for the good news. One of us may be crazy, but it's not you. My initial suspicion was that William Dement was just a figment of an urban legend concocted to explain the origin of Demented. But he turns out to be not only a real guy, always a plus, 
but the honest-to-gosh pioneer of scientific sleep research. He basically invented the field, and he's still at it. One does wonder, of course, whether Dr. Dement's name played a role in his choice of career. The corporeal existence of the illustrious Dr. Dement notwithstanding, however, his name is not the source of the common English word, demented. For that we turn to our old friend Latin, where the phrase dement means literally out of one's mind. This produced the Latin verb dementere, meaning to drive out of one's mind. The source of the Latin ment was the Indo-European root men, which also produced memory, reminisce, mathematics, mind and several other common English words. The English equivalent of the Latin dementere appeared in the 16th century as the transitive verb to dement, which meant literally to drive someone out of their mind. This verb apparently having little practical application outside of old Vincent Price movies is rarely used today. But the adjective formed from to dement, our friend demented, is alive and well and has meant, since it first appeared in the mid-17th century, out of one's mind, crazed, mad. There existed at one time dement as both a noun. A dement was known to the writer who could repeat the whole of the New Testament verbatim from 1888. And an adjective. Speak, man, speak. Are you dumb as well as dement? And that's from 1856. But both forms are now largely obsolete. We frequently use demented and other such terms as nuts, crazy, bats, and so on to denote, often in a humorous way, someone who is eccentric or whose opinions we find quite questionable. Actual mental impairness or illness is, of course, a serious condition, and those so afflicted need and deserve sympathy, understanding and support. The medical term dementia a Latin noun meaning the state of being demented, is used to cover a range of mental symptoms and states, ranging from mild to severe. The past, not surprisingly, is full of synonyms for demented that have fallen by the wayside. But one of the strangest must be the obsolete adjective would, meaning insane, mad. Also found in such terms as woodness, wood ship and wood head. This wood has nothing to do with trees. It's from the Old English woad, spelt W-O-D, derived from Germanic roots that carried the sense of angry, inspired or excited. The Old Norse branch of the same root produced the name of the Norse god Woden, memorialised in Wednesday, Old English Wodnesdag, W-O-D-N-E-S-D-A-E-G, or Woden's Day. At the 1912 Summer Olympics in Stockholm, American Walter Winnens took the podium and waved proudly to the crowd. He had already won two Olympic medals. 
a gold for sharp shooting in the 1908 London Games, as well as a silver for the same event in 1912. But the gold he won at Stockholm wasn't for shooting, running or anything particularly athletic at all. It was instead awarded for a small piece of bronze he had cast earlier that year, a 20-inch tall horse pulling a chariot. For his work at American Trotter, Winans won the first ever Olympic gold medal for sculpture. From the www.smithsonianmag.com website, when the Olympics gave out medals for art. For the first four decades of competition, the Olympics awarded official medals for painting, sculpture, architecture, literature and music, alongside those for the athletic competitions. From 1912 to 1952, juries awarded a total of 151 medals to original works in the fine arts inspired by athletic endeavours. Now on the eve of the 100th anniversary of the first artistic competition, even Olympic fanatics are unaware that arts, along with athletics, were a part of the modern games, nearly from the start. Everyone that I've ever spoken to about it has been surprised, says Richard Stanton, author of the Forgotten Olympic Art Competitions. I first found out about it reading a history book when I came across a little comment about Olympic art competitions. And I just said, what competitions? Propelled by curiosity, he wrote the first and still the only English language book ever published on the subject. To learn about the overlooked topic, Stanton had to dig through crumbling boxes of often illegible files from the International Olympic Committee's archives in Switzerland, many of which hadn't seen the light of day since they were packed away decades ago. He discovered that the story went all the way back to the Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the IOC and the modern games, who saw art competitions as integral to his vision of the Olympics. He was raised and educated classically, and he was particularly impressed with the idea of what it meant to be a true Olympian, someone who was not only athletic, but skilled in music and literature, Stanton says. He felt that in order to recreate the events in modern times, it would be incomplete to not include some aspect of the arts. At the turn of the century, as the Baron struggled to build the modern Olympics from scratch, he was unable to convince overextended local organisers of the first few games in Athens, St Louis and Paris that arts competitions were necessary. But he remained adamant. There is only one difference between our Olympiads and plain sporting championships, and it is precisely the contests of art as they existed in the Olympiads of ancient Greece, where sport exhibitions walked in equality with artistic exhibitions, he declared. Finally, in time for the 1912 Games, he was able to secure a place for the arts. Submissions were solicited in the categories of architecture, music, painting, sculpture and literature, with a caveat, every work had to be somehow inspired by the concept of sport. Some 33 mostly European artists submitted works, and a gold medal was awarded in each category. In addition to Winnan's chariot, other winners include a modern stadium building plan, 
for architecture, an Olympic triumphal march for music, friezes depicting winter sports as a painting, and ode to sport in literature. The Baron himself was among the winners. Fearing that the competitions wouldn't draw enough entrance, he penned the winning ode under the pseudonym George Horod and Martin Eschbach, leaving the medal jury unaware of the true author. Over the next few decades, as the Olympics exploded into a premier international event, the fine arts competition remained an overlooked sideshow. To satisfy the sport-inspired requirement, many paintings and sculptures were dramatic depictions of wrestling or boxing matches. The majority of the architecture plans were for stadiums and arenas. The format of the competitions was inconsistent and occasionally chaotic. A category might garner a silver medal, but no gold. Or the jury might be so disappointed with the submissions that it awarded no medals at all. At the 1928 Amsterdam Games, the literature category was split into lyric, dramatic and epic subcategories, then reunited as one for 1932 and then split again in 1936. Many art world insiders viewed the competitions with distrust. Some people were enthusiastic about it, but quite a few were standoffish, Stanton says. They didn't want to have to compete because it might damage their own reputations. The fact that the events had been initiated by art outsiders, rather than artists, musicians or writers, and the fact that all entries had to be sport-themed, also led many of the most prominent potential entrants to decide the competitions were not worth their time. Still, local audiences enjoyed the artworks. During the 1932 Games, nearly 400,000 people visited the Los Angeles Museum of History, Science and Art to see the works entered. And some big names did enter the competition. John Russell Pope, the architect of the Jefferson Memorial, won a silver at the 1932 Los Angeles Games for his design of the Payne-Whitney Gymnasium, constructed at Yale University. Italian sculptor Rembrandt Bugatti, American illustrator Percy Crosby, Irish author Oliver St. John Gogarty, and Dutch painter Isaac Israels were other prominent entrants. In 1940 and 1944, the Olympics were put on hold as nearly all participating countries became embroiled in the violence and destruction of World War II. When they returned, the art competitions faced a bigger problem. The new IOC president's obsession with absolute amateurism. American Avery Brundage became the president of the IOC, and he was a rigid supporter of amateur athletics, Stanton says. He wanted the Olympics to become completely pure, not to be swayed by the weight of money. Because artists inherently rely on selling their work for their livelihood, and because winning an Olympic medal could theoretically serve as a sort of advertisement for the quality of an artist's work, Brundage took aim at the art competitions, insisting they represented an unwelcome incursion of professionalism. Although Brundage himself had once entered a piece of literature in the 1932 Games competitions and earned an honourable mention, he stridently led a campaign against the arts following the 1948 Games. 
After heated debate, it was eventually decided that the art competitions would be scrapped. They were replaced by a non-competitive exhibition to occur during the Games, which eventually became known as the Cultural Olympiad. John Copley of Britain won one of the final medals awarded, a silver in 1948 for his engraving Polo Players. He was 73 years old at the time and would be the oldest medalist in Olympic history if his victory still counted. The 151 medals that had been awarded were officially stricken from the Olympic record, though, and currently do not count towards countries' current medal counts. Still half a century later, the concept behind the art competitions lingers. Starting in 2004, the IOC has held an official sport and art contest leading up to each Summer Games. For the 2012 contest, entrants sent sculptures and graphic works on the theme of sport and the Olympic values of excellence, friendship and respect. Though no medals are at stake, winners will receive cash prizes, and the best works will be selected and displayed in London during the Games. Somewhere the Baron Pierre de Coubertin might be smiling. Astronauts who have gone on spacewalks consistently speak of space's extraordinarily peculiar odour. They can't smell it while they're actually bobbing in it because the interiors of their spacesuits just smell plasticky. But upon stepping back into the space station and removing their helmets, they get a strong, distinctive whiff of the final frontier. The odour clings to their suit, helmet, gloves and tools. From the www.space.com website, What Does Space Smell Like? by Natalie Walchover. Fugitives from the near vacuum, probably atomic oxygen among other things, the clinging particles have the acrid aroma of seared steak, hot metal and welding fumes. Stephen Pierce, a chemist hired by NASA to recreate the space odour on Earth for astronaut training purposes, said the metallic aspect of the scent may come from the high-energy vibration of ions. It's like something I haven't ever smelled before, but I'll never forget it, NASA astronaut Kevin Ford said from Orbit in 2009. But astronauts don't dislike the sharp smell of space necessarily. NASA astronaut Don Petit described it this way after a mission back in 2003. It's hard to describe this smell. It is definitely not the olfactory equivalent to describing the palate sensations of some new food as tastes like chicken. The best description I can come up with is metallic, a rather pleasant, sweet metallic sensation. 
It reminded me of my college summers, where I laboured for many hours with an arc welding torch, repairing heavy equipment for a small logging outfit. It reminded me of pleasant, sweet-smelling welding fumes. That is the smell of space. The interior of the International Space Station smells a little more mundane. Petit, who recently returned from a second six-month-long mission on the ISS, told Space.com, The ISS smells like half-machine-shop-engine-room laboratory. And then when you're cooking dinner and you rip open a pouch of stew or something, you can smell a little roast beef. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info, there's a little video there with him telling us all about it. As I gradually but relentlessly approach the age of 60 and turn ever more into a cranky old fart, according to my wife anyway, I now have a little bit of ammunition to back up my whingings and complaining about the state of television and music these days. From the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website, science proves pop music has actually gotten worse. If there's one thing everyone can agree on, it's that everyone else's music is bad. And if there's something everyone but teenagers can agree on, it's that today's pop music is terrible. But what if the issue isn't inherent bias or nostalgia? What if today's music is really that bad? To find out, we'll need some science. Scientific American reports on a study that tried to track changes in pop music over the last half century. Joan Serra, a postdoctoral scholar at the Artificial Intelligence Research Institute of the Spanish National Research Council in Barcelona, and his colleagues, examined three aspects of those songs. Timber, which accounts for the sound colour, texture or tone quality, according to Serra and his colleagues. Pitch, which roughly corresponds to the harmonic content of the piece, including its chords, melody and tonal arrangements, and loudness. So, what happened since 1955? Well, timbral variety went down. That means that songs are becoming more and more homogeneous. In other words, all pop music sounds the same now. The study also found that pitch content has decreased, which means that the number of chords and different melodies has gone down. Musicians today seem to be less adventurous in moving from one chord or note to another, instead following the paths well trod by their predecessors and contemporaries, Scientific American explains. And the next time an old person, quote-unquote, me, complains that your music is too loud, well, it probably is. Music has gotten a lot louder in the past half century. This is a problem, Scientific American says, because loudness comes at the expense of dynamic range. 
In very broad terms, when the whole song is loud, nothing within it stands out as being exclamatory or punchy. Indeed, Sarah and his colleagues found that the loudness of recorded music is increasing by about one decibel every eight years. So what this study is saying is that your parents are right. Music just isn't what it used to be. And while I'm on the path of being a cranky old fart, as an ex-school teacher with many, many years in the elementary or primary school classroom, finally an article that has proven what I have thought all along. From the www.phenomenica.com website, birds are smarter than seven-year-old kids. No matter how bright you think your child is, until the age of seven, children are no brainier than the birds. Researchers at the University of Cambridge, during simple experiments, found out that birds did just as well as children up till the age of seven, the Daily Mail reported. By pitting birds against boys and girls using tests inspired by the Aesop's fable in which a thirsty crow is able to drink from a pitcher after using pebbles to raise the water level to within reach. In two of the three tests, the birds, Eurasian jays, did just as well as the seven-year-old children. After this, the human mind proved superior to the bird brain. The experiments built on earlier work in which jays quickly learned that adding stones to a cylinder half filled with water would bring a tasty treat floating on the surface within reach of their beaks. In a second test, the jays, colourful members of the crow family and about the same size as jackdaws, realised it was better to use pebbles, which sink, than corks, which float. When the Cambridge Shear children, aged 4 to 10, were set similar tasks, they did as well as the jays on the first, up to the age of 7. From the age of 8, the pupils learned more quickly than the birds. The pattern was similar with the second task, except four-year-old children did worse than the jays. However, a third more complex task separated the youngsters from the birds. It again involved dropping objects into water to raise its level. But this time, a U-shaped tube was used, with the join at its bottom hidden, giving the impression it was two separate tubes. This appeared to confuse the birds. However, the children did as well as before. The researchers said this shows children are better at putting preconceptions aside. Lucy Jecky, a PhD student, said, It is a child's job to learn about the world. They can't do that if they're limited by a preconceived idea about what is or is not possible. For a child, if it works, it works. The birds, however, found it much harder to learn what was happening because they were put off by the fact it shouldn't be happening.
Today I found out about a Japanese soldier who continued fighting World War II for a full 29 years after the Japanese surrendered because he didn't know the war was over. An article by Davin Hinsky from the www.todayifoundout.com website. Hiru Onoda is a Japanese citizen that originally worked at a Chinese trading company. When he was 20 years old, he was called to join the Japanese army. He promptly quit his job and headed off to training in Japan. At a certain point in his training, he was chosen to be trained at Nakano School as an Imperial Army Intelligence Officer. In this specialised military intelligence training, he was specifically taught methods of gathering intelligence and how to conduct guerrilla warfare. He was being groomed to go in behind enemy lines and be left with small pockets of soldiers to make life miserable for Japan's enemies and gather intelligence in the process. On December 26, 1944, Anoda was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines. His orders from his commanding officer, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, were simple. You are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give your life up voluntarily. Onoda then linked up with Japanese soldiers already on the island. And shortly thereafter, the island was overrun by enemy troops, when other officers that were already on the island refused to help fulfil part of the orders that Onoda was given to destroy the harbour and airfield, among other things. This in turn made it easier for the Allied forces to conquer the island, landing on February 28, 1945. Shortly after the island was conquered, the remaining Japanese soldiers split up into small groups of three or four and headed into the jungle. Most of these small groups were quickly killed off, Onoda's group, though, consisting of himself, Yuichi Akatsu, Siochi Shimada and Kinshiki Kozuka, were not. They continued to use guerrilla warfare tactics to harry the enemy troops as best they could, while strictly rationing supplies, including food, ammo, etc., supplementing their small rice rations with bananas, coconuts and other food from the jungle, as well as doing raids on local farms where they could manage it. In October 1945, after another cell had killed a cow from a local farm for food, they came across a leaflet from the local islanders to them saying, the war ended August 15th, come down from the mountains. The few remaining cells discussed this leaflet extensively, but eventually decided that it was Allied propaganda, trying to get them to give themselves up. They felt that there was no way that Japan could have lost so quickly since the time when they were deployed. Instead, this would seem strange to anyone who had no knowledge of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Also, one of the cells had been fired upon just a few days before. They felt that this wouldn't have happened if the war was over. Eventually, near the end of the same year, local islanders 
fed up with being shot at and raided, got a Boeing B-17 to drop leaflets all over the jungle. These leaflets had the order to surrender printed on them from General Yamashita. The few remaining cells once again scrutinised these leaflets to try to determine their authenticity. In the end, the wording on the leaflet pertaining to the method with which they would be sent back to Japan seemed fishy to them, largely because the wording made it seem as if Japan had lost, something they couldn't fathom, and which was a big problem in their willingness to accept the war had ended. If Japan had won, they would come and get them. Japan couldn't lose, so the war must still be going. So they once again believed it was the Allies becoming more tired of their successful guerrilla tactics and trying to get them to surrender. When this didn't work, more leaflets were dropped with newspapers from Japan, photographs and letters from the soldiers' families. Delegates were sent from Japan and went through the jungle speaking over loudspeakers, begging the soldiers to give themselves up. In every case the cells encountered, there was always something suspicious in their minds about the way it was done to cause them to believe it was an elaborate hoax by the Allied troops. Years passed in the jungle, with these four soldiers continuing to perform their swarm duty of harrying the enemy at every opportunity and gather intelligence as best they could. At a certain point, when most everybody they saw was dressed in civilian clothing, They began thinking that this too was a ruse from the Allied forces to lull the Japanese guerrilla soldiers into a false sense of confidence. They considered the fact that every time they fired on these civilians, shortly thereafter search parties would arrive hunting them. Over time they had gradually let their solitude twist their minds into thinking everyone was an enemy. Even their own fellow Japanese who would occasionally come and try to find them and get them to come home. These of course in their minds were Japanese prisoners forced to come and lure them away from the safety of the jungle. Eventually after about five years in the jungle Akatsu decided he would surrender but he didn't tell the other three soldiers. So in 1949 he slipped away from the others and after six months alone in the jungle was able to successfully surrender to what he thought were Allied troops. But on this event, Anoda's cell became even more cautious and went into deeper hiding and took fewer risks as they viewed Akatsu leaving as a security threat. What if he was captured, they thought. About five years later, another of the small group, Shimada, was killed in a skirmish on the beach at Gonton. Now there are only two. Onoda and Kazuka. For about 17 more years, the two lived in the jungle, gathering intelligence as best they could and attacking the enemy troops when they could risk it. They were still convinced that eventually Japan would dispatch more troops and they would then train these troops in guerrilla warfare and use the intelligence they had gathered to retake the island. After all, their orders were to stay put and do as they had done until their commanding officer came and got them, and their commanding officers had promised to do so no matter what. Now in October 1972, after 27 years of hiding, Kazuko was killed during a fight with a Filipino patrol. The Japanese had long thought that he had already died. They didn't think he could have survived so long in the jungle. But now when they had his body... 
they began thinking perhaps Anoda was also still alive, even though he had also long since been declared dead. The Japanese then sent a search party to try and find Anoda in the jungle. Unfortunately, he was too good at hiding with 27 years of practice. They could not find him. Anoda continued his mission. Finally, in 1974, a college student, Nariro Suzuki, decided to travel the world. Among his list of things to do on his journey was to find Anoda, a panda, and the abominable snowman. He travelled to the island and trekked through the jungle, searching for signs of Anoda. Shockingly, where literally thousands of others through the last 29 years had failed, Suzuki succeeded. He found Onoda's dwelling place and Onoda himself. He then proceeded to try to convince Onoda to come home with him. Onoda refused. His commanding officers had said they would return for him no matter what. He would not surrender nor believe the war was over until they returned and ordered him to do so. At this point, he would not have been allowed to simply go home. He would be required to surrender and throw himself on the mercy of the enemy. Over the years, he had been too successful at using the guerrilla tactics he had mastered, killing 30 Filipinos and injuring over a 100 others, as well as destroying various crops and the like for almost 30 years. Suzuki then travelled back to Japan with the news he'd found on Oda, Major Taniguchi, now retired and working at a bookstore, was then brought back to the island and to Anoda to tell him that Japan had lost the war and he was to give up his weapons and surrender to the Filipinos. As you might expect, after living in the jungle doing what he thought was his duty helping Japan, now only turning out to be wasting 29 years of his life and worse killing and injuring innocent civilians, this came as a crushing blow to Anoda. We really lost the war? How could they have been so sloppy? Suddenly everything went black. A storm raged inside me. I felt like a fool for having been so tense and cautious on the way here. Worse than that, what had I been doing for all these years? Gradually the storm subsided and for the first time I really understood. My 30 years as a guerrilla fighter for the Japanese army were abruptly finished. This was the end. I pulled back the bolt on my rifle and unloaded the bullets. I eased off the pack that I'd always carried with me and laid the gun on top of it. Would I really have no more use for this rifle that I had polished and cared for like a baby all these years? Or Kazuka's rifle, which I had hidden in a crevice in the rocks? Had the war really ended 30 years ago? If it had, what had Shimada and Kazuka died for? If what was happening was true, wouldn't it have been better if I had died with them? On March the 10th, 1975, at the age of 52, Anoda in full uniform that was somehow still immaculately kept, marched out of the jungle and surrendered his samurai sword to the Philippine president, Ferdinand Marcos. Marcos, very unpopular in the Philippines, but immensely popular in Japan, pardoned Anoda for his crimes, given that Anoda had thought he was still at war the entire time. Now in the end, we might look at Anoda as a fool, or worse, a murderer of innocent people. In the end, he was both of these things, there is no denying it. But at the same time, 
Not everyone who lives by strict convictions and puts their all into achieving what they believe to be the right thing ends up having what they strive towards turn out well or end up being a good thing. This is one of those cases where someone did something remarkable, showing extreme dedication to his country and his duty, as well as fortitude unmatched by many in history. Had circumstances been different and the war really had waged on so long, soldiers and people from both sides of the fight would have respected him for his courage and dedication. In that respect, he was more of a hero. However, the world wasn't the way he thought, and in the end, in retrospect, he was more a fool than anything else. But at the same time, we can't ignore that this was a man who did something great with respect to doing something that few others could have done. Had circumstances been as he thought, what he did was something to be admired. He faced what he thought was death around every corner and lived in an extreme situation for 30 years fighting for his country. That should be respected. It's a rare person who could do something like that and never quit or surrender. Never take the easy way out as most of us do all the time when faced with adversity, that is orders of magnitude less than what Anoda faced for almost 30 years in the jungle. And there's a few bonus factoids. When Anoda returned to Japan, he was seen as a hero. He was also given his pay for the last 30 years. Life was much different in Japan now than he remembered, and not at all to his liking. Many of the traditional Japanese virtues he cherished, such as patriotism, were nearly non-existent in the culture. Indeed, in his view, Japan now kowtowed to the rest of the world and had lost its pride and sense of itself. So he moved to Brazil and used his pay to buy himself a ranch there and eventually married. Onoda released an autobiography, No Surrender, My 30-Year War, in which he details his life as a guerrilla fighter. After reading about a Japanese teenager who had murdered his own parents in 1980, Onoda became even more distressed at the state of his country and young people in Japan. He then returned to Japan in 1984, establishing a nature school for young people where he could teach them various survival techniques and teach them to be more independent and better Japanese citizens. In May 1996, he returned to the Philippines to the island he had lived on for 30 years, donating $10,000 to local schools. As you might imagine, he is not too popular with the locals there, despite the donation. And a few Anoda quotes. Men should never give up. I never do. I would hate to lose. Men should never compete with women. If they do, the guys will always lose. That is because women have a lot more endurance. My mother said that, and she was so right. One must always be civic-minded. Every minute of every day, for 30 years, I served my country. I have never even wondered if that was good or bad for me as an individual. Parents should raise more independent children. When I was living in Brazil in the 1980s, I read that a 19-year-old Japanese man killed his parents after failing the university entrance exam. I was stunned. Why had he killed his parents instead of moving out? I guess he didn't have enough confidence. I thought this was a sign that Japanese were getting too weak. 
I decided to move back to Japan to establish a nature school to give children more power. Parents should remember they are supposed to die before their children. Nobody will help them later on. So the greatest gift parents can give their children is independence. Never complain. When I did, my mother said that if I didn't like my life, I could just give up and die. She reminded me that when I was inside her, I told her that I wanted to be born. So she delivered me, breastfed me and changed my diapers. She said that I had to be brave. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website and the bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com And for those of you who have told me through feedback that you like to listen to the podcast because it helps to cure your insomnia, if you're still awake at this point, something that may help you to sleep. Ode to Joy by Music for Deep Sleep. And of course, it's based on Beethoven's Ode to Joy. So until next time, everyone, this is your host, Paul, saying bye for now and sleep tight. Unless you're driving, of course.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.